You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest today on the podcast is Frederique Fabritius. Um, we're welcoming her back to the show. She's a neuroscientist and trailblazer in the field of neuroleadership, and she's got a new book. It's called The Brain-Friendly Workplace, Why Talented People Are Quitting and How to Get Them to Stay. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting to yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Frederic, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's my pleasure. I want to start our conversation today with something you identify as the neuro gap. Um, you note in the book, quote, if you could look inside the brains of the people who rise to the top of corporations, you would find a shocking lack of diversity in how they think, end quote. How do they think? Yeah. Yeah, well, the crazy thing is, you know, we think about gender and sexual orientation, all these metrics, which are important, but we completely neglect that we also need diversity in how different brains think. And what I've discovered based to a big data set that I received was that the people at the top all share a certain neurosignature. They all think alike. They're all highly stress resistant, highly ambitious, a bit like almost, I would say, very energetic and restless. So they want to get stuff done, which is a great quality in a leader. And they are, you know, they have goals, which is a great quality. But at the same time, uh, there was also what I call an empathy gap. So you could see that they are very ambitious, very stress resistant, very active, you know, but at the same time, they seem to lack a little bit of empathy. And I think what happens, and especially now with the great resignation and the quiet quitting and all of that, I think people are leaving because 
the workplace is not in line with their neuro signature. It's only in line with the neuro signature of the people at the very top who might thrive in this kind of high stress, high change environment. But for everyone else, it's too stressful. It's not in line with your life goals and you quit or you do some aspect of quiet quitting and just don't do your very best. So I, that's what I call the neuro gap, that there's a lack of diversity in the brains of the people at the top. And as we all know, they shape the workplace culture for everyone. And what I'm saying in the book is that we need to create a brain-friendly workplace where all kinds of different neurosignatures can thrive. You know, the people with a high testosterone, dopamine neurosignature, let them, you know, travel across the globe and let them work 180 hours per week. I'm not stopping them. But everybody else who might have different preferences should be able to work in line with their preferences. When I think about this, I think about the way we cast a show at Second City, right? So we have an ensemble of six people. We would never want six people who all think the same way uh, or, or all have the same talent. What you, what you are looking for in any great ensemble is a variety of different skill sets. So by coming together, uh, we're making something greater than it's some. Uh, and, and, and the reality to it at leadership is why we have so few women CEOs, um, so few uh, people of color, uh, not a lot of introverts, right? And then, and then you really are, are you're not working with um, all of the tools that you need to be successful in a business. Exactly. And then very often when we do ask people from minorities to join leadership positions, we're kind of asking them to fit in and to behave just like everyone else. So what I often see is that companies make great efforts to hire diverse people, but then once they are there, they should all fit into the mold and behave a certain way, which I think is counterproductive to greater diversity of mind. And, you know, it's, Everybody gets it that a theater piece would become so boring when everybody's just playing off the same talents, as you say, and has the same personality. And in the workplace, it's kind of the same. You know, we'd get much higher profitability and well-being if we had more diversity. And also if we not just stop there, but also allow people to act in different ways. So, for example, introverts. We hire introverts, but then we force them to to do all this evening socializing and all these, you know, after work hours. And I think, you know, respect that not everybody wants to be a part of that. Um, and there are so many studies that talk about the importance of diversity in, in terms of your, your uh, workforce. Um, but you note in the book, too, that companies who are trying to cure this with unconscious bias training, that that, there's not a lot of studies to say that that helps. In fact, it might go the other way. Exactly. And I think that's a painful thing. If you think about how much money is spent and how much good intentions people have about these training programs, and then when you measure results, it's hard to find them. Not much has changed. And even more so when you remind people of their biases, Badly, as badly as that might sound, it can reactivate those biases. So, you know, we think we are making people better, but do you really think that if somebody's racist, reminding them for three hours in a morning workshop of that it's bad to be racist will erase it? No, maybe it will even activate it because you, you know, we have that situation also that if somebody wants you to change, you almost feel like, no. 
I mean, this person shouldn't rule over me. You know, I have a little bit of that rebellion in myself as well. I have a do- high dopamine your signature. So if somebody tells me what to do, my brain flips and thinks like, wow, you know, maybe I want to do just the opposite. So mm-hmm. I think there's a good intention with the bias programs. I just think we can do better. And so my approach or my, I'm not saying I have the solution to everything, especially not to something as, you know, complicated as racism, for example. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not saying here is the solution, but one thing that studies show is that it's easier to change the situation than the people. So for mm-hmm. example, a nudging approach, if you try to go on a diet and you just tell yourself, oh, I want to be beautiful in a bikini. And, you know, mm-hmm. I just stop eating chocolate. You do that for two days and then you stop because it all relies on willpower. But if I in the grocery store don't buy chocolate and don't have it at home, and then when the craving hits me, there's nothing I can eat. Right. And I first have to get into my car and drive a few miles and then go to the gas station and buy the chocolate. That's so much better. So this is a nudging approach. You know how the grocery stores put all the sweets next to the cashier so that mm-hmm. when you're hungry and tired and waiting in line, you get some. So I see the workplace as a place where you can create an environment that brings out the best in people, but not in a way that you're telling them you need to do this, you need to do that, not in a scolding way that tells them you're a bad person and you need to change. More in the way if you, for example, install um, regular loving kindness meditation in the workplace that will bring out kindness in people. And that, for example, has been shown reduces bias. So it's more about setting up an environment that brings out the best in people and that allows different neurosignatures to thrive rather than coming in there and telling people you are a bad person, you need to change this behavior because, you know, nobody wants to hear a negative feedback. Nope. No one does, including myself. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Me, me too. And this is a, a thing we teach in improvisation, which is learning to take a note um, and not, you know, you don't have to do the note. You don't have to agree with the note. You take it in the moment, and 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 the because per- the person is just wants wants this thing to improve. There's a problem to be solved, so we're no- noting that there's a problem, and here's maybe some solutions. All right, can you talk to us about? Um, uh, cause you, in the chapter, it's about our brains. You talk about the importance of lateral thinking and systems thinking. So can you explain to our audience what those two things are? Yes. So systems thinking is a way of thinking where you really think about the different rules that govern a system. So for example, if you program, you're using systems thinking, or if you, you know, if you're coding, if you're trying to fix a car, if you, you know, mathematics is a way of system thinking. There are certain logical rules. And if you follow those, you'll come to a solution. That's a pretty much straightforward way of thinking, even though some trial and error can be involved. So many people with high testosterone neurosignatures have that preferred way of thinking. And make no mistakes, it's not about men and women. Mm-hmm. Because this is not just about your testosterone levels. This is about certain brain areas. So women have that too, by the way. So it's not about men think like this and women like this. But basically, if you enjoy math and technology, you know, if you enjoy solving logical problems, then you're probably a good system, system thinker. While lateral thinking is more intuitive and it's more about, for example, recognizing patterns in seemingly random data, 
Um, so this is a process that is very important in creativity because you sometimes have these aha moments, these Eureka moments. But in the business world, it's frowned upon because they're for every decision that's made, people say, so show me the signs, show me the data, show me the right. proof. And I, I get why you want to minimize risk and you want to improve profit. I get it. It's not, I totally get it. But if somebody just says, I had a hunch, I had a gut feeling, people would laugh at you. They wouldn't give you the big budget. They wouldn't, you know, give you the okay. So what most people do in the business world is they have that gut feeling and then they collect the data to prove it. And if you mm -hmm. ask the right experts, you will always find somebody who supports your viewpoint. Um, so very often people have that lateral thinking, but it's not allowed in the business world. And it's linked to the estrogen system in the brain, which again, it's not just about women, men have that too. So what I'm saying is that those two ways of thinking are both valuable, are right. complementary. And I think the business world needs to understand the value of lateral thinking um, I have an example in the book where I was working with a team of system thinkers and we wanted to find out why certain patients didn't like a certain medicine. If they should have liked it because it had very few side effects and was really great, we were supporting the launch of that that drug. And my colleagues just wanted to send a survey out to the patients like, why don't you like the drug? And I said, do you really think they know? Do you really think they can answer that? And they looked at me, we're like, sure, we just send it out. We ask them, we get the results, and then we know what's there to do. I had people play like a theater game, like mm -hmm. impro almost. And I had them play the, you know, the sickness and the drug and the alternative therapy. And this unveiled that people didn't like the medicine because it didn't have enough side effects. Nobody uh, would have said that in a survey. Nope. They felt it wasn't strong enough. They felt this can't save my life because I don't lose, I don't start vomiting. I don't lose my hair. So why should I take this little pill when instead I can take something strong? So we would have never gotten that answer if we just had sent out a survey. I'm a lateral thinker and I have a background in neuroscience. So to me, it's clear that people often don't know why they're doing something. They intuitively make certain decisions. And so... I convinced my colleagues to go with my theater playing approach. They thought I was completely crazy. Mm -hmm. It worked very well. We found the solution. We changed our approach and it was very helpful. But so, so now I've been speaking for a long time, but what I want to say is there are different ways to solve a problem. Right. And our brains can do that in a logical way or more in a creative lateral way. And I think we need to be more open-minded to understand that, first of all, for different problems, you might need different approaches and you might need different people who have different ways of thinking. So we literally have a program that we've done with corporate clients over the years. And this is a group that is used to doing focus groups. And so uh, they do their focus group, but then we improvise in front of the whatever audience that they're trying to reach um, around whatever topic or, or product or whatever it is. And what we're finding is we're gaining insights from what they laugh at uh, because you know, uh. a, a laugh is emotional. So it's, it's like, it, it's great. And then, and then, and then after that, some, you can actually get to truth with them because they have to then reflect on well, what was it? Because a laugh is often something that strikes you as true. So what was it at that moment that strikes you as true? And I think it's a completely unique way to sort of iterate your idea, iterate your ideas. And we all know that sort of the rapid prototyping idea is good for anything that's new. It's just, you know, people get that in manufacturing, but they don't often get that with like advertising. 
you can wrap in prototype. Yeah. But this is so cool. I mean, that's really good. Measuring where people are laughing and then digging deeper there. You know, if you tell that in a business and say, oh, we just watch where people laugh. You're like, wait, come on, you know, but mm -hmm. yeah, I think the brain is about so much more than what's at the surface. So getting access to people's emotions is valuable and there's where the real information is hidden. Okay. So why, why is Myers-Briggs still in such wide use in certainly corporate America? I don't know about corporate Germany. Yeah, it's funny. It's, and the funny thing is when I wrote the book and I kind of bashed the Myers-Briggs, I was thinking like, oh, this will disqualify. Like my clients don't like to hear it um, uh, because they often have that in place and they don't want to hear it, that it's, <laughs> you know, well, here's why. That it's not scientific? Um, that it was Yeah, it's not oven? scientific. I think the reason why it's in use is, first of all, it puts people into nice little boxes. Yeah. And everybody recognizes themselves. So it's kind of a nice, easy, cool way to categorize people. And I understand it. Our brain can't deal with the complexity of different personalities. So it's, of course, helpful to somehow categorize people. I don't have a problem with the categorization process. But the problem is that, for example, the Myers-Briggs forces you to choose between thinking and feeling. And in the brain, you can be somebody who's highly analytical yeah. and at the same time, somebody who's highly emotional. And if you kind of answer the questions a little bit of bit, this, a little bit of this, it might, you might end up in the middle and just have two more answers on the thinking. Then they say you're a thinker or two more on the feeling and they say you're a feeling person. And that's just not accurate because in the brain, you can be both. And, and so I think we are both. You can't, you can't. Stop your feelings. Yeah, exactly. It's not reality. Exactly. We're both. So I think that's, for example, very misleading. And I think one is the categorization is just very appealing. And the second is I think people have no clue that it's so unscientific. I think they have great marketing. It's widely used. And, and then there's also that aspect that when I criticize it, people say, yeah, but it works. Yeah, that's because any type of group activity and workshop will bring people together. And if you open up a dialogue to talk about different personality traits and to role play together and to spend a day together around your personality profiles, that will always have some impact. But I just think you could have a better impact if you used a tool that actually had reliability and validity. I think it speaks to also human beings' incredible need to feel seen, um, seen yeah. and heard. And so if, if you could feel it and be, we're tribal, right? So, oh, I'm in this tribe. And, the, and, but that, but that again, the other problem with that is, uh, look at how you might be limiting yourself by thinking you're this one thing and not another. Um, and, and we're all, you know, Walt Whitman said it very early on that we contain multitudes. Um, and, and we all do. And so this, this is, it's a very limiting concept. And it, it also ties to what you refer to the book as outcome culture, uh, at work. Can you talk a bit about? what that is and how that kind of holds us back? Yeah. And so here's the thing. I think what we had for the past decades was hustle culture, you know, work harder, work longer. You know, if you, you know, people were wearing their lack of sleep as a badge of honor. I think the tide is changing, but this is kind of like how, when I look back at when I worked in consulting, this is what was going on. The people who stays the longest is the most productive, when in reality, our brains are not wired for, for 
they're wired for bursts, but not for slugs. So our brains are not supposed to be on for 24 hours. We have a process that I would call cycling. So we have intense moments of focus and then we cycle off and we need some strategic rest. And so, for example, we can get into the flow state where we're highly productive, but then we need to take a break and replenish those neurotransmitters we used up in the flow state. How does that lead to outcome culture? What I'm proposing in the book is that we need to switch from hustle culture to outcome culture, where it doesn't matter like where you work, when you work, how you work, uh, whether you work at night or during the day. If you work in the office or from home, it should be about what you achieve and what the outcome is. So, mm-hmm. you know, decide what people should achieve and then give them all the freedom and autonomy to get it done on their own, you know, in line with their preferences. And I think that's a shift because sometimes I have had coaching clients who have admitted to me in sessions that, for example, they finished a project and didn't tell their boss and they've just been sitting around the office for days pretending to work. I've seen this. It's not, I'm not making this up. You think people are stressed out, but people are equally bored because we're measuring hours. I think we should stop measuring hours and it should be about what can you get done? What do you think? Why are you here? What do you need to do? What do you want me to do? And then give people the freedom to do this on their own. Um, yeah, well, and I think you that, know. you know, COVID is really like uh, you brought this home. And, and I, it just in terms of I'm at the office now at Second City and I, I like working here and that, me being present here is, is, is good for my style of work and what I do. The salespeople who are not here because they switched to virtual and have stayed that way. They're doing great because they're in quiet spaces, most of them. Uh, and, and they, you know, here it's a big pit and you, know, you, and we know this, we know how we get distracted, right? And so if someone's talking right next to you, it's very hard to concentrate and, and make that sale. So I, th- I think we've been flexible, which is smart. And I wish more businesses would do that. I just, you know, it's so you talked about this, people don't want to change and they're sort of stuck in nine to five or even, you know, nine to, you know, six or whatever it is um, in the office all the time, hustle, hustle, hustle. And I don't know, I don't, I don't have a lot of um, hope though. I mean, your book says it, your book is telling us this is what's going on in the brains. Um, But yeah, very hard for, for business culture to catch up to that. Yeah. And I, I do think it's interesting when we look back at how our ancestors used to work. So, you know, and usually we look back 200 years to the industrial revolution and then we say, oh, thank God we're not, you know, sitting in that coal mine anymore or something like that. But we miss the bigger picture for 99% of our shared human history. We've been hunter gatherers Mm -hmm. and people used to work for how many hours per per week? 15, roughly, Mm -hmm. that's estimated. So people used to integrate work and life and people used to you know, have short moments of hunting or gathering where you need to be super focused. And then people took a break and spend time with their families and socialize. And, you know, so that's how our brains have been shaped and that what we are really wired to do. And our hustle cultures is just not in line with that. And we can see the high rates of burnout, depression, suicide, uh, heart, you know, diseases. All of that is because we don't work in line with what our brains need. Can you tell us about your TEDx talk? I thought that story was terrific. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was super excited about my TEDx talk and I have a special presentation method with an iPad. So I don't create a PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. I draw while I speak. And I think that's really good for the brain because there's that novelty aspect that sparks dopamine. People like to follow while I write on my screen and they, so I had all that set up and I had emailed the organizers up front and they were like, yeah, of course we can connect your iPad. No problem. The moment I walked on that stage and started my speech and I had my iPad there laying on the lectern, you know, I started, I had a few stories, people were laughing. I walked over to my iPad and then nothing, well, you know, nothing. I, I used my pen, started scribbling and there was like, just like blank. Nothing was reacting. And my mind went blank because, you know, I knew this was filmed. There were a thousand people there, spotlight on me, literally. And then I just flipped out of it. I just thought, no, like, forget about it. I just told them, listen, I'm not going to waste your time now trying to fix the technology. We all get bored. We lose the momentum. I'm just going to go on without it. Mm -hmm. And I had such a blast. I yeah. was, uh, you know... When you do a TED Talk, they, they force you to rehearse and rehearse almost to the point for me of like, I got bored by my own speech because it was so scripted. The moment I lost my iPad, I felt free to improvise because I didn't have to follow. Like they can't force me to follow the script if I don't have my iPad anymore. Right. So I was going wild, connecting with the audience, improvising. Mm -hmm. And I had so much fun and everybody was laughing and connecting with me. And afterwards, I was really on a high. And I think that's because our brains need to be slightly over-challenged. So just a note here, when I talk about outcome culture, I'm not saying we should all just relax and take naps and not work anymore and live from social right. care or something. I'm saying, you know, you need moments of high when you're really challenged and then you need a break. And I think before my tech breakdown, I was a bit bored with my speech. I could like blah, 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 rehearse it in my, my sleep. The moment I broke free, I was really challenged because I had to make it work in the moment. And I also had to hit exactly the 18 minutes. I couldn't make a mistake. And that put me into a heightened state of awareness where everything just happens to you. And that's the flow state, you know, when you're fully present, when you lose the concept of time and you just love what you do and you have your best ideas come to you in that moment. So that's what happened to me, luckily. But I think it also has to do with the fact that, of course, I have that experience of being on a stage. I think if that had happened to me years ago, maybe it wouldn't have ended so well. Um, right. But, I, but I, I do think there's a point for people to remember, if you want to reach peak performance, put yourself into a position where you're just slightly over-challenged, where the challenge is a little bit too big for you. And that's what happened to me at that TED Talk. <laughs> yeah, so it was I, crazy. I have, I have a very similar story <laughs> with, with a TEDx talk I was doing at TEDx Broadway. And I had essentially memorized what, what I was going to do. I practiced it. And I just completely went blank and went up. And uh, I, I was forced to improvise. And I started getting laughs that I wasn't getting before with the, with the pre- sort of set speech. And what I learned over time, and this was, this was probably like, I don't know, seven years ago or so, maybe eight years ago, I've completely adjusted because I do a ton of pub public speaking. I have got basically beats. I've got 
stories, I've got content, and I kind of know I'm going to deliver most of it, some of it, um, but I allow myself to sort of be in the moment with the audience. And then, and then I make such discoveries. We mutually make discoveries together. Um, and so it's just a sort of like a level of confidence that I know my stuff. And if I'm just fully here, um, it's going to be better. We're all going to sort of feel right. it. Um, and I think I've delivered the other way and people have been fine, but I've only had magic in, in a room when I'm able to do that and be sort of like fiercely present in the moment. Exactly. And I think I like that about our podcast conversation here. It's not just you firing off questions and I'm answering things. I think that's a very unnatural way of having a conversation. Yeah. So I think, you know, I'm happy I didn't get to see the questions before or something. I think it's like people can sense when you have a conversation and everything is just so rehearsed and rescripted. Nobody wants to listen to that. It's just not in line with what our brains want. We want to hear stories. We want to connect with each other. And that's when our brains sync up. Um, so, well, it's funny though. You know, so, so the, and the reason we're able to do that as I'm holding up to you see from the camera is I've got six <laughs> pages of notes uh, specifically, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm only have that as a sort of a, like, like the beats, right? Sort of like, oh, we could maybe go there, go there, or I want to focus on you with this, you know, whatever we're talking about a little bit more. Um, and it's very, again, this is such an improv thing because it's like, uh, people do think it's magic when they watch it. It's like, no, no, no. Th these people are highly skilled at practice this over and over and, and they've gotten it wrong more than they've gotten it right, which gives them the ease of knowing that just because I get it wrong in this moment doesn't mean I'm not going to get it right in the next. I'm actually reading um, Annie Duke's book on quitting um, and how mm. we have basically she starts saying like we all like very successful people quit lots of things, but we but we don't have like good positive metaphors around quitting. Um, and, right. And then people get trapped and they and she has all these stories of like athletes who literally are breaking bones because they won't listen to the medic saying stop. Right. Uh, Muhammad Ali being the big example of, you know, someone who all everyone was telling him he should quit, he should quit, he should quit. And he did irreparable damage to himself because he just didn't want to be seen as a quitter. Yeah. And I think there's loss aversion as well, yeah, you know, and the brain, there's a little bit. It's You see that when you want to sell your house, you always think it's worth more than what the buyer thinks because it's your house. You don't want to let go. And if your identity is so much linked to your career achievements, It's hard to let go of that. I think people who go into retirement can sense that feeling of loss, that something that's been so important to you is just gone. So you need to find something else. Yeah. And, and there's other things out there. All right. One of the things I posted on LinkedIn when I was reading the book was uh, this U.S. Army study uh, called the Babel Hypothesis. Can you talk to us yeah. about that? Yeah. I think it's so insane, but that's how the brain works. Yep. You know, people think you're smart if you talk a lot. So that basically is how I would summarize that that hypothesis. So it's not about what you say. It's more about how much airspace do you take up? How much, you know, how much do you talk? So I think politicians know that if you go into a talk show, just talk, talk, talk. It doesn't matter if it's smart. It doesn't matter if it's founded in any science or anything. Just make sure you take up space. And you know that's that's a problem because very often 
quiet people can be smart, you know, the kind of people who are actually crunching the data and who are actually working on the content, who are not out there marketing themselves might be the ones who really have the breakthrough discoveries and they are not out there selling themselves and, and marketing themselves. So in the business world, I think it's important to understand that very often introverts don't get the promotion, even though they deserve it, because they don't talk about themselves 24-7. And we also know, and that's linked to another concept of my book, that narcissists and psychopaths and Machiavellists are overrepresented in the leadership boardrooms. So basically, the people who are full of themselves and love to talk about themselves get the promotion. Mm-hmm. And not the ones who are maybe quietly in a corner making the big discoveries. And I think we need to find respect for different thinking styles, different behaviors in the workplace, and have that understanding that introverts particularly add a lot of value, even though they don't tend to go on and on and on about what they've achieved today. Uh, right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a thank you because story. But before we do that, um, we've had a number of guests recently from a lot of different backgrounds who are all sort of talking about the same thing, which is the importance of relationships, like whether it's the grant study from Harvard or, or, or that, that the, and you write about this in, in the book, literally in terms of adding on years to your life. Um, so how, how, how do relationships work in the brain? I think relationships are the very core or essence of for us as humans of how we, how our brains work. We used to think that our brains are, you know, entities that work in isolation, but in reality, we have mirror neurons that constantly mirror what the other people are doing. We know that when br- people are in a great conversations, our brains sync up, mm-hmm. literally sync up. We know that when people get into group flow, and I think that's relevant for you because I yep. think in pro comedians, they get you know, they get into flow all the time and not just individual flow, but group flow. We know that there's specific patterns so that people's brains sync up in those moments. And so I think social relationships and good and trust and all of that, they're not just nice to have little well-being perks that you can add to the workplace. If we don't have that, if we feel lonely, if we feel disconnected from those around us, our brains can't function optimally. We die earlier. We have more diseases. We can't think straight. It leads to a lot of problems. So I think we need to find ways to help people connect again. Um, and, and, and even though I think hybrid work is great, we need to make sure we find ways to really still stay connected um, and not isolated because it's really, we know that harmful toxins accumulate in the brain when people feel lonely, feel lonely. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's not just about having a bunch of like contacts, right? These relationships need to have authenticity to them, which means there's going to be inherent vulnerability, um, which again speaks to a certain kind of profile, leadership profile that that is not as comfortable with that. And I've seen the research around the fact that really effective leaders um, uh, share their struggle and, and that we can, we can sort of see where their pain points are. Um, and those are the people who inspire me. Right, right. And I think people often are so scared to show vulnerability because you think people will hate you for it. But in reality, our brains are wired when we see somebody struggling you know, our, our empathy network kicks in and we connect with somebody on a deeper level. Though there is some body of evidence that actually for leaders, it's great to show vulnerability. But when you interview an intern, 
it might be more beneficial for that intern to be a bit more like confident and show. So, right. you know, people tend to think it's great if Elon Musk says he's been fired from some job or whatever. I don't know if he ever has been, but like those who have already the success, if they open up and show some vulnerability, it makes them more human. So it's good for them. But if you're still climbing that ladder, right. showing vulnerability is not always helping you get ahead. Just yeah, as a well, disclaimer here so that you don't sure. ruin your next job interview by like crying in the seat, like, oh, and then my dog died. And then, you know, That's people right. can can work with a certain level of vulnerability, but it needs to be dosed just right, unfortunately. It's not just open up everything about everything all the time. Because context changes. And, and, mm -hmm. and because context changes, it means it's a nuance in our contemporary culture, uh, especially in the world of social media, not so interested in shifting context or uh, any, anything that's nuance laden. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, when guests have uh, already been on the show and they've answered our yes and question, we now ask them for a thank you because question. And the idea here being how you stay rooted in a difficult conversation um, and, and maybe get a better outcome is by saying thank you because. Do you have one of those stories for us? Yeah. Thank you for the time I spent in consulting where I really was working around the clock flying across the globe on gallons of coffee. And I really couldn't think straight. I was completely exhausted. I never had time to eat. I never had time to sleep. It was just a blur when I think back of it. But why am I thankful? Because it helped me to understand how many people today are still working. And yeah. it helps me to understand that this is the reality they're facing. Because if I had come just straight from the laboratory, from neuroscience to help improve the workplace, I might have missed how it really is like for many leaders or for many people. You know, it's good to have seen that dose of reality before I think about how it, we can improve it. At first, you know, I had that experience myself personally, and I think that has made me a better person to come in and, and give people advice on how to work happier um, because I've been a very unhappy worker in the past. I love that because it, and it fits into a theme that we've seen here, whether it's Dan Pink talking about regret and why regret can be seen as a good thing. Because if, if we don't understand what our regrets are, we probably don't understand what our greater purpose or, or mission is. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard to accept and realize that the struggles we had just make up our story and, and we, we don't exist in our story without those things. Right, right. The book is called The Brain-Friendly Workplace, Why Talented People Are Quitting and How to Get Them to Stay. Frederic Fabritius, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.